five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. Welcome to another episode of the Space Business Podcast where we investigate all the exciting ways in which people participate in the new space economy by conversations with entrepreneurs, executives, investors, and other members of the space family. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor in and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics a satellite bus manufacturer and mission integrator. Their satellite technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation for various purposes, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University, or ISU, which is also our partner in this podcast. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide, ranging from executive courses lasting a few days all the way to a one-year master's. Check them out at isunet.edu. This episode is one of our periodical non-business episodes, but I am really excited about it. My guest this time is Dr. Graham Lau, an astrobiologist at Blue Marble Space, and among other things, the host of the aptly named NASA show, Ask an Astrobiologist. By pure chance, we recorded just a few days after it was announced that researchers may have found a biomarker for life in the atmosphere of Venus. Of course we talk about that, but also about many other things. If you want to know how we go about finding potential life elsewhere in the universe, this episode's for you. Hey everybody, I'm joined today by Dr. Graham Lau. This is one of our non-business episodes, which actually always has me really exciting because even I can't talk about business all the time. So welcome, Graham. Uh, you are an astrobiologist. Do you want to give a brief introduction, please? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. First off, I am an astrobiologist. My, my background academically stems from biology and chemistry from my undergraduate degrees I spent a few years studying astrophysics, and then I, I jumped into a PhD program in geology. So I've, I've kind of run the gamut of the sciences, but I'm also really intrigued in philosophy, and I really love science fiction as well. And, and I'd say for me, maybe it was my, my early love of science fiction as a child that really kind of started drawing me in to the realm of astrobiology. Uh, and for your audience who, who are listening, if you haven't heard of this before, even though you, you might most likely have due to cosmos and, and other things going on, astrobiology is... In, in some ways, it's, it's our study of the origins and evolution, the distribution of life in the cosmos. But sometimes I, I like to say a little bit more simply that astrobiology is our quest to understand the nature of life. Perfect. So let's take a step back here and we can just dive right in. What is actually life? So if I remember you know, my biology a little bit, there's things like you need to have basically some sort of way of handling energy. So that's like metabolism, I guess. Then I guess they say you need a way to, to reproduce, so reproduction. What else is there? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Uh, what is life? And this might seem shocking to everyone listening, but we actually don't have a universal definition of life. Uh, if you look out there in the literature, there's a few hundred different attempts to provide a definition for life. And maybe one that you'll, you'll find the easiest and you'll hear the most 
Uh, it's sometimes referred to as the NASA definition of life. Uh, this claims that life is a self-contained chemical system capable of undergoing Darwinian evolution. But even that, that definition itself you know, is wanting. For instance, viruses uh, don't fall into that definition. We don't know if they're alive or not. Some argue they are, and some argue that they're just simply biological machines. Also, like artificial intelligence doesn't fit in any of our current definitions very well. Um, and so there have been different attempts to try to understand life by characterizing what life does, uh, which is very much what you're talking about. So like we have metabolism, we have growth, uh, potentially movement, excreting un unwanted byproducts, and then evolution itself, you know, an organism or, or a population can evolve. Uh, there's a bunch of different ways to try to characterize life, but we, we still face this issue that we only know of one kind of life, uh, the life here on this biosphere on our planet. And even though there's, there's a lot of diversity to life on Earth, all of life on Earth is highly connected. We all share the same biomolecules. We all use DNA. And so there is, there is no alien life on Earth that we've found so far. But what we really need, if we're going to really start trying to understand what life is and, and try to find a universal definition of life, we, we really do need to find some other example, some alien life to allow us to do some comparative biology. So, yeah, I have to ask the stupid question. So if, if there's no commonly accepted definition, how the hell do we know what we're looking for when we go to like <laughs> Mars or Venus or Enceladus or Titan or wherever? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question, right? So for, for a long time, we, we, we've you know, tried, tried to understand what life might be like out there by starting with what we know, life here. And so you might have heard that old NASA strategy of follow the water It, it's been assumed for a long time that most likely life uses water as a solvent. But in more recent years, a lot more of us are wondering you know, what kinds of other uh, solvents could allow for chemical reactions to happen for an alien form of life. And so people have come up with some really cool ideas about life in a hydrocarbon basis, using a, a solvent that's a hydrocarbon, maybe using ammonia as, as a solvent, or, or using something like supercritical CO2 as a solvent. There's a lot of other options. But we think it's, it's probably likely that like water is a really good solvent for, for the kinds of chemical reactions for organic uh, life, that'd be carbon-based life as we know it. Uh, water is very good for that. So looking for water is a good place. Um, looking for the signs of what life does is an important thing. So, so life here on Earth, it catalyzes reactions. And sometimes in doing so, it can leave behind certain diagnostic signatures. Uh, we call these biosignatures. And some biosignatures are even agnostic. Uh, there's a laboratory at Georgetown University called the Laboratory for Agnostic Biosignatures. And this is part of the Network for Life Detection out of NASA. And uh, this laboratory, their specific mission is to try to figure out which biosignatures uh, would work for any kind of life that could be out there. So, so, you know, having an agnostic approach to looking for signs of life. But we're only just now kind of getting into this sweet spot of understanding that, that, you know, life could be very different. And so we do have to take that into consideration. Yeah. And I guess there's, there's various levels of signs of life, right? There's a, the sign, I guess it would be a sign of life if we fly out to, I don't know, the outer solar system and there was some sort of like Borg style, hostile starship starting to fire on us. I guess that would qualify as Absolutely. a sign of life, but. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, so there's but a like, story, right? That uh, Carl Sagan, um, and this may be apocryphal. I, I really, I have not yet met, met someone who told me if it's true or not, but I've heard it's true that Carl Sagan very much wanted to test the, the cameras for the Viking landers going to Mars um, and have them monitor some animals walking past the cameras just in case we got to Mars and some weird Martian creature went walking past the camera. 
um, just to have it calibrated. Um, so that, that's the easiest sign. If, if, we, if an alien spaceship shows up tomorrow uh, outside of Earth orbit and they want to say hi, um, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty good biosignature. We, we found life. <laughs> it's there. Um, but, you know, a lot of times what we're searching for are signs of ancient life that existed long ago, subsurface life, um, you know, life from Europa's ocean or in, in the, the subsurface of Mars or now potentially in Venus's clouds. And so we're often now looking for chemical signs, geological signs, physical signs of life. And so, of course, we, we have to address the, um, the elephant in the room. And funnily enough, we actually scheduled this podcast before the news came out. But of course, the news that recently came out is that we may have found something like a biosignature on Venus of all places. Do you want to briefly summarize that? Absolutely. So this research was just announced here recently. It was from a, a paper published, uh, led, led by Jane Greaves. It included uh, Sukrit Ranjan, who is a researcher at my organization, Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. And I had a great chance that that morning after the paper was, was released and this was announced to, to chat with Sukrit about the finding and, and have some of his perspectives. So I've actually spoken to someone on the paper and, and the finding is really cool. So, so what this paper showed um, and something that's been predicted for some time now, uh, they had other papers earlier this year saying it, they, they predicted it, it was going to be found, um, is a molecule called phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus. Uh, so phosphine, very much like methane, me methane is a carbon atom with four hydrogens around it. Uh, this is a similar kind of molecule, but with phosphorus. So it's a, it's a, phosphor, a phosphorus atom with three hydrogens bound to it. Uh, so it's called pH3. Uh, and this molecule is really intriguing to have fat be, be found in the atmosphere of Venus if it's really there. Uh, so we have found this molecule in other worlds. We know that phosphine is formed on Jupiter and Saturn, and, and we've, we've known that for many decades now, actually. Um, but the, the current uh, understanding of how it's most likely forming on Jupiter and Saturn is way different than Venus. Uh, so, the, the, you know, Jupiter and Saturn are gas giants. They have much larger atmospheres and much different physical processes going on in those atmospheres uh, with pressure and density and chemistry to allow this phosphine to form abiotically. Uh, now, the team who found this phosphine, um, according to uh, spectroscopy from something called millimeter wave astronomy, uh, basically they were using radar astronomy, uh, starting with a telescope in Hawaii called the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope. Um, they, they had this finding, and then they confirmed the finding uh, using another telescope down uh, in South America called AMA, uh, or the, the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. Um, and this finding, it, it's just one little line in their spectra. Um, it's one little dip in the radio frequencies coming from Venus, but they've attributed that dip to this molecule phosphine. Uh, and again, they found it with both telescopes, uh, this, this, mm -hmm. same, this same dip in the spectrum. And they report that it's somewhere around like 53 to 65 kilometers up in Venus's atmosphere, which is a region which actually is far more clement than the surface of Venus. Uh, in that region, it's like a 0.5 to 1 bar. Um, so the pressure is almost what we have here at sea level. Uh, the temperatures are much lower. Um, it is extremely acidic in that area of the atmosphere. But this finding of phosphine is really intriguing because they, 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 they tried to figure out every possible abiotic mechanism they could to explain it. And they weren't able to explain it with our currently known photochemistry. Uh, again, it doesn't form the same way it does on, on Jupiter or Saturn. But the cool thing about this is that here on earth, 
phosphine is formed naturally and only formed naturally by life, by, by organisms that thrive in, in environments without much oxygen, uh, they can form phosphine. And so finding it in the Venus's atmosphere could be a potential biosignature, but definitely is not a guaranteed biosignature yet. So what, what, what should we do now? Yeah, that's a big question. And, and again, I had a wonderful chance to chat with Sukrit Ranjan, who was on the paper. And, and he basically, and I, I think the team are really good at pointing out, this is not a life detection. The very first thing we need to do is confirm the phosphine is actually there. Uh, again, this is a single line in their spectra, um, which isn't a lot to go on. They didn't find any other lines to confirm the phosphine. And it's also in a region where uh, sulfur dioxide, SO2, um, could be present and causing this line. And so uh, even though the researchers discounted that, um, a lot of people are wondering, is, is, it, is it sulfur dioxide? Is it something else that we're missing and we just don't know about? Um, so a good first step is to confirm this. Um, there's a lot of planned missions that could be happening, uh, a lot of uh, mission concepts to Venus here in the near future. But one thing that, that not enough folks are talking about, there, there's a spacecraft that's going to fly by Venus next month called Bepi Colombo. Uh, and yeah. Bepi Colombo is going to, it's going to Mercury but uh, it has a flyby next month. It's a little late right now to plan anything for that flyby, but it actually has another flyby of Venus uh, next year. I think it's late summer next year, um, if I recall correctly. Uh, mm -hmm. And during this flyby, we actually could potentially turn the spacecraft and get a measurement to see if that phosphine is there. It, it does have the ability to look for it. And so that could be really interesting. If, if we can find it from Bepi Colombo next year and, and actually confirm the phosphine, then we really have some work ahead of us to either figure out what we're missing about the geology and the chemistry of Venus's surface and atmosphere, um, or to figure out if there actually is some, something going on biologically that we need, need to get to Venus and find out about. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking about Venus, so I feel like, you know, whenever there has been discussion of like, you know, sending out science missions and study places and, and, and also substantially study them for the purposes of potentially finding signs of lives, There's been like so much talk about Jovian moons and, and moons of Saturn and, and of course of Mars. And I feel like Venus actually hadn't been that much in, in the discussions. And maybe that's just my fault that I haven't, you know, hadn't focused, but is, is that correct? Was, was there like a less focus on Venus or? Yeah, it's entirely not your fault. Um, this is very much the perception that we see because of the mission funding. There have been many proposals to send missions to Venus that just don't get funded. Um, and oftentimes we end up funding a Mars mission instead, or we fund you know, another mission to the outer worlds. Now, admittedly, not only as an astrobiologist, but as a planetary scientist, I want to go do everything. I, I want to explore Europa and Enceladus and Triton and Titan and Pluto and, and everything, Mars and Mercury. But I, I, I love Venus so much. And I often argue to people that, yes, Mars is very cool. It's, it's an awesome world. We should explore it. But say, say four billion years ago, our solar system was visited by intelligent alien species. I would put down money that if they found any other world besides the Earth inhabited at that point in time, it was probably Venus and not Mars. Um, so, so Venus is very much our twin, our twin planet. It, it's very similar in size, um, very similar in composition to the Earth. It's missing having that really nice large moon but there's a good chance that early on Venus might've had oceans. It could have been a, a far more clement uh, and, and habitable uh, Earth-like world in our solar system in the Goldilocks zone. 
And so I, th I think Venus definitely deserves far more study. But the issue is that Venus isn't as attractive anymore for study um, because of the fact that the surface has 92 times the surface pressure that we have here on Earth. And the temperature is, you know, several hundreds of degrees, nearly 900 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, I forget what that is in Celsius. I think it's like 645 uh, in Celsius. Um, pretty damn hot. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty it's pretty darn hot. It's way beyond the temperature limits of life as we know it. And it's also so hot, so high pressure, and so acidic that our spacecraft don't survive for very long. Uh, the longest lived spacecraft that we know of on the surface uh, was Venera 13 from the Soviet Union. And that lasted 127 minutes uh, on the surface. And that's, that, that's very long. Most other things haven't come close to that. Uh, but we do have some other plans in the works for upcoming missions. And I, I think now this potential false fiend finding might give us a little bit of the, the boost we need to get more funding for more Venus missions. Now, now you're saying you want to do it all. And, and, you know, I feel intuitively the same, but sort of, let's say if there was, you know, like if, if you had a lot of budget, but still a constrained budget and you could go to like one place in the solar system, where would you choose to go and why? Yeah. Great question. I mean, there's, there's so many, potential worlds to explore. Again, I think in the early solar system, Venus was the better place for life to have been. I do think Mars is worth exploring now because there are very old rocks preserved on Mars for us to look at. But I am a huge fan of Europa. Um, for those listening, if you don't know, Europa is one of the Galilean moons around Jupiter. So it was one of the, the, very, fir the very first moons discovered outside of our own moon in the universe. Galileo found Uh, these, these four moons, uh, Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, um, when he first started turning his telescope to the sky over 400 years ago. And those moons are, are super attractive for a lot of reasons. There's lots of cool planetary science for us to explore there. But Europa is, is a very large moon, close to the size of our moon. Um, Europa has this, this icy shell with cracks running all along it at its surface. And based on measurements from the, the Galileo spacecraft, Uh, that orbited Jupiter um, and studied its moons, uh, we, we have good data to show that Europa most likely has a thick icy crust, maybe 10 kilometers or so in thickness. And then down below that has a very, very deep ocean. And so that's my, my best bet, I think, right now for finding extant life in our solar system. Uh, Europa has, has so much area in that, in that ocean for potential chemistry to occur. Not, not only at the, the ocean ice interface, but down at its sea floor, um, if, if Europa has hydrothermal vents like we have here on Earth, like black smokers and white smokers, it could be that the chemistry of life is occurring right now inside of Europa's ocean. And so I'm super excited for the upcoming Europa Clipper mission. I'm very excited for the JUICE mission. Uh, I really want to see a Europa lander happen. And I don't think it's going to happen in my lifetime, but I do think in the not too distant future, we humans are going to drill into Europa's ice to try to get down into that ocean. And that sounds, we would be looking there probably for the reasons you mentioned life, let's say life as we know it in some sense. And it's interesting, you mentioned the black and white uh, smokers. And for people who don't know, this is basically in the very deep ocean. This is like, um, I, I guess, volcanic type outlets. And Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, actually, I'm going to ask you just a question. So what is the prevailing theory right now, or what do you say the most accepted theory 
for how life emerged on Earth, because I think that's where the black and white smokers come in in terms of providing a source of energy to, to really early life. Yeah, that's a very good question because we, we have a lot of different um, hypotheses for how life started here. And, and we really have come very far in our research in the origins of life. I personally don't think we're ever going to know exactly how life started here on Earth. I, I think we've just we've lost those chemical and geological messages to time. Um, that said, we are learning a lot more about what's possible. And, and yes, there, there's, there's a whole realm of astrobiologists who think that that the key might be hydrothermal vents, that it might require um, these, these deep ocean, uh, uh, not the, the, these uh, uh, aqueous vents where hot water is flowing through um, the, the oceanic crust and coming up and bringing with it a lot of metals, a lot of chemistry, a heat gradient, a chemical gradient for life to survive where there's a disequilibrium in the chemistry, in the temperature, in the environment. Uh, however, there's also there's also some other ideas out there. Uh, for instance, uh, a fairly recent paper uh, uh, from from Bruce Damer uh, and Dave Deemer uh, has suggested what, what they call their hot spring hypothesis. Uh, they hypothesize that that life had to start on land in a drier system, um, and that what's really important is actually a cycle of wetness and dryness on continental crust around hot springs. Uh, so hot springs, just like hydrothermal vents, they also provide a gradient of temperature, a gradient of chemistry, this disequilibrium for, for life to utilize. Um, but they also then give us the, these, these different environments for concentration of molecules. Uh, and so there still is a lot of active debate. Uh, did life start in the ocean or did life start on land? Or is it some mixture of the two? Maybe, maybe some forms of biological molecules or reactions or even a few different forms of life were forming on the early earth that later came together to become part of what we now know as life. Do you think on earth that it was just one way of one type of life, the one that we know now, which is carbon based and, you know, we're basically all, well, I think we all use the same genetic code with you know, some very slight uh, modifications sometimes, uh, or could there have been other types of life on earth on the early earth? Yeah, if I had to throw some money on, on a bet, I would wager that, that there was actually a few different forms, if not many different forms of life on the early Earth. Um, we, we, you know, now, nowadays, all of life as we know it on the Earth, we all share those same biomolecules. We all share DNA uh, using roughly, like you said, the same, the same genetic code. But there's no reason that, that the earliest life on Earth couldn't have been a series of biological experiments. And some of these experiments might have started crisscrossing together, picking out some of the best things that were working the most for life to catalyze reactions, for life to copy information so that life could evolve and change and adapt through time. Uh, I personally, so, you know, people think about like life as a tree and they think about like the trunk of this tree just being a straight line going down to the beginning. Um, but I, I think a lot more of us now in astrobiology are kind of imagining that tree going down and then spreading back out in a large root system uh, where you had a lot of different kinds of life, a lot of different reactions that could be called biological all occurring. And then they started coming together and forming life as we know it. Uh, there's even a hypothesis called the shadow biosphere hypothesis. Uh, this was proposed some years ago that maybe there is another form of life on earth right now, but that our current techniques for measuring chemistry and biology uh, and that our current approach in the sciences are missing out on what this form of life might be. 
that maybe there's some other forms of life that originate, but that just get destroyed by life as we know it and eaten up. Uh, we don't have any evidence to support this hypothesis, but it is an intriguing thought uh, that maybe there could be something else happening right now on Earth. Yeah, but that brings up the question. So, again, the life as we know it, that's basically carbon-based chemistry, the, the genetic code and all of that. But so if you go out to, to other places, like you said, I mean, maybe even on the early Earth, as you just explained, it may have been different. And then certainly in other places in the solar system or universe, it could be completely different. Like, uh, I assume it just doesn't have to be carbon-based. It doesn't have to use the same genetic code. So what what would we then be looking for? Is it something like we still assume there's some sort of met metabolism and hence we use for sort of like regular expulsion of waste products? Or I, I don't know, what, what would we look for? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of possible biosignatures. Um, so yes, looking for signs of metabolism is one way to go, trying to understand what reactants are present. Will they react abiotically? So if we have a pool of potential things that could react together, a bunch of different chemicals, will they actually react and form a product without any life present? And sometimes those reactions will occur, but on such long time scales that we shouldn't expect to see their products. And then if we see those products, that means that something has come along and sped that process up, which is very much one way of looking at life. Life is this process of catalyzing reactions and, and, and making use of the reactions that don't happen as fast naturally, speeding them up, and then using any extra energy from that, that process for the, the activities of life. Um, but there's a lot of other possible things we could, we could look for. Uh, for instance, isotopes. Life as we know it prefers using lighter isotopes in reactions. And so maybe we'll find an isotopic signature of a biological process elsewhere. There's a lot of other things we can look for in the environment and uh, how minerals form. Uh, there could be diagnostic biominerals out there on worlds. Or maybe we'll, we'll find a, a world that just has such a unique mineral complement that it had to be some kind of biological process. Um, there's a lot of different ways of, of looking for these signs of life. Uh, and we at the Network for Life Detection uh, and the Center for Life Detection from NASA Ames are putting together a database of, of the known biosignatures to try to figure out which ones really are like concrete you know, and, and very well studied and easily applied uh, versus other ones that might not be as good in understanding whether or not we found signs of life. But having said that, the problem is, as, as you in fairness pointed out at the, at the beginning of us talking, is that we really only have one example of life evolving. And, and as you said, even for that one example, we don't know exactly what has happened. So is there maybe, do you ever think about kind of taking or going it about it the other way around? That's sort of like you take a, you know, sort of godlike view and you're like, okay, if I had to create life, you know, what type of planet would I go to? What kind of chemistry would I use? And what could I do? Uh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we definitely, we definitely are considering all the possibilities as much as we can um, that said, you know, we, we are humans, we are fallible. And so there's a good chance that we're missing out on something that maybe even right now, our current science, our current understanding of who and what we are is missing out on something. That said, though, I mean, we, we have a lot of reasons to suspect that there, there could be Earth-like worlds out there for us to explore. And so you'll, you'll very often hear of people talking about, you know, finding some Earth-like planet in the Goldilocks zone around a star and taking that view, you know, like where would we expect the origins of life to occur But again, it often does assume that, that you know, life is similar to life as we know it. Uh, maybe life uses a different chemistry altogether. I mentioned earlier this idea of potentially having other solvents than water. Uh, so maybe liquid water at the surface of a planet isn't that important. Maybe it's really just important for life as we know it. 
And then also like we're looking for Earth-like worlds in the Goldilocks zone, but maybe we'll discover in the long run that icy worlds like Europa and Enceladus tend to be the more inhabited worlds in our, in our universe. And if that's the case, then, then we're kind of looking in the wrong place right now. But we have to start somewhere. And I think it's kind of exciting right now, this moment in time. I mean, when, when I was born, we didn't know of any exoplanets for sure. I mean, we thought they should be there. But now we have over 4,000 confirmed exoplanets. And I have a feeling that in my lifetime, that number will remarkably increase to tens of thousands, maybe even 100,000 known exoplanets. And so that starts providing us a lot more potential places to look. Yeah, excuse the comparison, but this exoplanets, it's, for me, it's almost a little bit like the testing for the coronavirus. It's like the more testing and research we do, like the more we're likely to find probably. Oh, <laughs> I yeah, think it's absolutely. just a matter of matter of increasing uh, capabilities. But you mentioned something very interesting, which is um, the, 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 the question of the solvents and that it probably doesn't have to be water. So, you know, I must admit for me personally, like, you know, when I look at the solar system, one of the bodies that always has fascin fascinated me the most is Titan. And, you know, for listeners who, who may not know, Titan is one of the, the moons of Saturn. And co correct me if I'm wrong, Graham, but I think it's basically only other body in the solar system which has a liquid on the surface, only that it's not water, it's basically um, hydrocarbons. And yes, that's correct. If I, remember, if I remember correctly, people hypothesized that, well, maybe it would be possible to, to evolve some sort of life form in that solvent there on Titan. Yeah, Titan's so intriguing. Uh, and again, like I want to do it all and I really want to get back to Titan. It'd be so cool. Uh, we did have one lander on Titan, um, the Huygens probe mm -hmm. that came off the Cassini mission. Uh, and you're right. So there, there are these lakes of methane and ethane, uh, very simple hydrocarbons uh, at the surface of Titan. Uh, Titan appears to go through seasons and Titan has a very thick atmosphere, not just dense. It's, it's one and a half bar at the surface. So not too much denser than our atmosphere here on Earth, but much <laughs> thicker. Uh, so like where, where the International Space Station orbits uh, in low Earth orbit here around Earth, if there were a space station orbiting that distance from Titan, it would very much still be in a very thick haze of Titan's atmosphere. Now, the cool thing with Titan, so, so Titan has this really unique chemistry of hydrocarbons going on. Uh, here on Earth, we have, a, we have a hydrological cycle where water evaporates, it goes into the atmosphere, makes clouds, it rains back down as, as rain and snow, it goes into our lakes, our rivers, our oceans, our groundwater, and the process starts again. But on Titan, we have a methanological cycle. So methane and ethane are evaporating from these lakes and going up and making this thick, hazy atmosphere around Titan. And then even though it is much further from the sun than we are, there's still enough sunlight reaching that atmosphere and enough of these molecules for photochemistry to happen. So sunlight is reacting with these molecules and it's making the molecules themselves even more reactive. And then they're reacting together. And so we, we have models that show there's a good bit of different kinds of these organic molecules now in the atmosphere of Titan. And those molecules are raining back down. And so the surface of Titan has like this, this goop of hydrocarbons and organic molecules all over. And so it's an extremely intriguing for us to consider what, kind, what, what that environment could do uh, if there is life there. The biggest caveat though, that, that you don't hear about enough is that the surface of Titan is extremely cold, well below the limits for life to sustain reactions as we know it here on Earth. So if there is chemistry, if there is, sorry, if there is biology at the surface of Titan or in those lakes, that, that biology has to function in a much different way than what we know here. It needs to be able to 
overcome that barrier of having such a low temperature that that really hinders reactions from happening. And so a lot of us are actually wondering if maybe on Titan, maybe there's life on Titan, but it's actually down deep below the surface. Maybe even Titan has an ocean and there could be life down there as well. But anyway, it goes, I, I think we need to get back to Titan and explore. And I'm very glad we are. We have the Dragonfly mission coming up. Uh, Dragonfly yeah. will have a, a drone basically flying around Titan, better understanding that chemistry in the atmosphere, better understanding the surface. And so that's going to be a really cool mission. Yeah. And as you mentioned the cold temperature and, and whatever, a while ago we were talking about the, um, the conditions on Venus, which in a very different way are very extreme, um, well, certainly on the surface, but even in the, in the atmosphere where they may have found life now, you mentioned it's, it's highly acidic. Now, I guess one interesting thing to mention here is that life on Earth has been really adaptive in the sense that, you know, we have organisms that manage to survive in any sort of extreme conditions like extreme heat, extreme cold. I don't know whether as cold as on Titan, you can tell me, uh, radioactivity and so forth. So I guess that also gives us a certain optimism on, on finding life somewhere else, even if it seems extreme to us humans. Absolutely. The, the, the word for these organisms are extremophiles. And, and there are many, many reasons to argue that we humans are, are actually extremophiles as well in a certain respect. Uh, but, but studying extremophiles here on Earth, things that thrive in high temperature and low temperature, uh, very acidic environments, very salty environments, very dry environments, these organisms are, are helping us to better understand the limits of life as we know it. Uh, and those limits are, are very much dictated by the chemistry and the physics of these situations. And so there, there is life on Earth that can survive freezing and then be brought back. There are, are even, even animals that can do this. The wood frog is a great example. You can freeze a wood frog and its whole body basically shuts down. Uh, and then you can thaw that wood frog up and, and it's, it's perfectly fine. It, it just go hopping away. But the surface of Titan is about uh, negative 180 Celsius, uh, right around 90 Kelvin. And so it's very cold. Uh, this is like liquid nitrogen temperature. This is getting down to, to, to such bizarre low temperature that uh, life as we know it just can't survive. That's not to say, though, that some other form of life couldn't have adapted to that. It would just take you know, some different kinds of chemistry for that to occur. But you're right, though. Like Studying these extremophiles has taught us so much more about the potential limits for life. And then I'm, I'm sure your audience has heard of tardigrades. Uh, these are now like yes. the rock stars of the extremophile world. Uh, these little water bears, they've been around for a few hundred million years. Uh, they're very cool looking creatures. They exist all over the surface of our planet. It's pretty easy to go in your backyard and find one if you have, if you, if you know what you're looking for and you have a microscope. And they're called polyextremophiles because they can survive several different kinds of extreme. And one of the coolest, actually, actually there's two. One, they can survive very high radiation. Not, not as much as Dinococcus radiodurans, uh, the current record holder, but tardigrades can take a very high dose of radiation and still survive. But maybe one of the coolest ones is that they can survive desiccation down to a very small amount of their internal uh, body water content. Uh, so in this process, they, they can lose a whole lot of their water and their body is just kind of like slumped together. And then you can give them some more water later on and they kind of come back. And so we've, we've done exposure experiments with them outside the International Space Station. I think we should send them like to Mars and back to explore uh, how that environment affects their, their, their biology. Uh, they're really cool little creatures. I love the water bears. And well, there's two, there's two things to say about water bears here. I mean, one, they obviously prominently featured in the latest uh, Star Trek series, the one on Netflix, for people who haven't watched that yet. But the second thing, which kind of actually goes to your point that we should send them to Mars, uh, Graham, I'm sure you're aware that the, the Israeli uh, moon mission 
the Space IL mission with the parachute lander that, that was trying to land on the moon, they crashed the lander. And as we found out afterwards, for whatever reason, one of the payloads actually had water bears attached to it. So mm -hmm. we now have water bears on the moon. And I guess from what you're saying is there is a chance that they're alive. Yeah, there is a chance that they're, that they're alive and maybe just in a, in a state where they're not actually doing much because they, they need water and they, they need some, some support. And so it would be good, cool to go there and sample them and bring them back into the laboratory and then see, see how that lunar environment ha has treated them. Uh, now, to be fair, a lot of us you know, were a little bit more upset we found out that had happened uh, because a lot of folks weren't aware that that package was going. And even with Mars, we, we actually had another experiment, the Planetary Society had this experiment called the Life Disk. They had tried out, uh, it was going to go out to Phobos around Mars and come back. And it was going to take along with it tardigrades and a few other organisms. But it was on the spacecraft called Phobos Grunt, uh, which also was a failed mission, unfortunately. It got into Earth orbit and never left Earth orbit to go out to Mars. But I think it's a worthy experiment. We should go, we should go to the moon and, and sample that material and bring it back here and see how the tardigrades fared. And we should definitely send them out, send some, some life out and, and see what happens when we send life out past Earth's magnetic field and, and, and you know, the support that our, our planet gives us from that, that radiation from the sun. Right. Now, before we start talking about tardigrades, um, I guess most of the life, including the, the life that we suspect may exist on, on Venus, is basically microbial life. And I'm taking it from what I've heard so far is that you probably believe that there is life out there somewhere, correct? Um, so I don't know, actually. Um, as, as a scientist, I, I think it's important for everyone to remember. So sometimes you hear, you, you hear someone say that there has to be life out there, but we, we really don't know. And so I, I hate to do it, but sometimes I have to throw cold water on the situation and remind people that we could be alone. They're, they're, we, we don't know yet. We don't have enough data yet to tell us otherwise. And so from, from first principles, we have to admit that we could be alone in the universe. And in that case, I actually feel like we, we then have a moral duty to protect this life and, and to spread this life beyond the earth. But when you start looking at the numbers, when you start looking at the numbers of, of galaxies in the universe, you know, some hundred billion or more, and then like the average numbers of stars in galaxies, you know, our galaxy alone has at least a hundred billion stars, maybe even a few hundred billion stars. And now we, and now we know based on finding exoplanets that there might be upwards of a trillion planets in our galaxy, several hundreds of billions at least. That starts really making us, you know, think about the possibilities. It just, it starts to feel like there has to be something else out there. And so even though I, I think it's important to remind ourselves that we don't know, that we could be alone, I think it's promising and it makes us wonder a lot more uh, what's possible when we start really looking at, at how many other worlds there are out there for life to have started. And what I was actually going to get at is, so there's the, the microbial life, right, which on Earth has been around for literally billions of years. But then there's the, um, let's call it advanced life. But, you know, I don't even mean like advanced life, like humans, if that is advanced life, but, you know, just like eukaryotes. So like advanced cells. Is there a sort of a big distinction or is there anywhere in the process of evolution of life? Is there like any distinction where you'd say, okay, microbial life, maybe I accept that's possible with these billions of planets, but advanced life, maybe that's much more difficult for, for this and that reason? Yeah, you'll hear that argument a lot, actually, in the astrobiology community. And I personally don't agree with it. Microbial life dominated, single-celled single life dominated most of Earth's history as far as we know it. Uh, however, we keep we keep setting back the clock for the formation of eukarya to earlier and earlier, and and we keep finding more evidence to suggest that multicellular life uh, happened earlier than we thought. And so we we really don't know. Maybe maybe it's more common if there is life out there. Maybe it's more common for life to start 
and to very quickly transition through these different phases of single cell life, multicellular life, and then these large scale organisms that kind of dominate their biospheres. Or maybe it's a slower process. Maybe we're really, really rapidly advanced and most other life is single celled for a long time. We don't really have enough data to go on. And I think it's, it's probably bad practice for us to assume that any other evolutionary and geological process on another world would follow the same time span and framing as ours. There are certain things that probably had to happen along the way to allow for these processes to occur. But again, it, we, we really don't know. It, it, it could happen a lot faster in other worlds. Yeah, I think, so what I was getting at was, yeah, it was less about the time frame. It was more about what you said, like certain events that may have to happen along the way. So one thing that has always fascinated me with the evolution of life on Earth, at least the way I understand it, is that jump from basically prokaryotic cells, so bacterial type cells, to, to eukaryotic cells. And without going deep into biology here, because it's not meant to be a technical podcast, but basically at some point in time along the way, we... Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, we gobbled up basically a bacterium process of endosymbiosis, which basically became what we now call our mitochondria. And it basically allowed us a much more efficient way of, of, of handling energy. And is that something that you think is necessary? And is that a likely event to happen? Yeah, I personally, I, I think so. It makes a lot of sense. Like the, 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 this hypothesis that now is now theory of endo, endosymbiosis and how we got not, not only our mitochondria, but also our chloroplasts. The current thinking is that chloroplasts were also a separate organism that was photosynthetic that was ingested by a, a creature that then started using that photosynthesis. I think not only is this you know, possible and, and probably likely for other forms of life if they're out there, but maybe it even happens to a greater degree. Maybe we'll find some forms of alien life that have gone through this endosymbiosis process many times and have a, have a series of organelles inside of their cells that allow them to do a lot of different kinds of cool chemistry that we just we just haven't you know thought of yet, uh, and also things like horizontal gene transfer uh, here on Earth. Not only you know have we figured out that some organisms could engulf other organisms and then start copying them inside of themselves, but we also know that for a lot of single cell organisms, they can transfer pieces of their their genetic code which makes us start having to think a lot more about how evolution would actually function for an alien biosphere. Maybe there's a lot of alien creatures where horizontal gene transfer is happening a lot more and they're sharing, they're sharing their genetic code far more often, uh, which also gives a lot of potential for sharing different gene products. And so, yeah, it really, there's so much that we don't know, but it also so much that we figured out about life on our own planet that really opens up our, our eyes to put the possibilities out there. So if we find this type of life, and let's assume for the moment it is going to be one of sort of microbial uh, single cell type life on Mars or in the, in, in the atmosphere of Venus, be, what should we do with it? And I mean, also from not only from a technical point of view, because um, but also from an, from an ethical point of view, like how should we go about protecting it or not protecting it? Or are these discussions even taking place? Absolutely. They're taking place and they're taking place in a lot of different ways. There's this whole realm of planetary protection, you know, making sure that we're, we don't have forward contamination where we're, we're taking Earth life to other worlds that could destroy the life there or contaminate those worlds. Uh, and then also reverse contamination where we bring a spacecraft back and it brings back alien life with it that could harm yeah. Earth yeah. life very much like in the Andromeda strain, you know, that, that kind of idea. Sure. And both of these things could be bad. And we need to be very cautious. If alien life, and say we find alien life on Mars or in Venus's atmosphere, and it has a markedly different biochemistry then there's a potential that, that our life wouldn't hurt that life and that life wouldn't hurt us. But maybe maybe we have a shared origin through panspermia with this life. Maybe it's a life that is mainly viral 
uh, or maybe it's a life that's pathogenic to life as we know it, we have to be very cautious. And so we have right now in the works plans for doing sample return from Mars. The Perseverance rover is on its way to Mars right now, uh, along with two other spacecraft. The Perseverance rover is going to land on Mars and do some really cool research including looking for signs of life, but it's also going to start storing samples. And then together, the European Space Agency and NASA are planning on doing a sample return back to Earth. And we, we need to be prepared for those samples to potentially be dangerous to life on Earth. And so we need to have the right laboratory set up, the right, you know, right precautions taken to make sure we, we don't endanger our own life by introducing an alien life form. Wasn't there something recently that NASA changed the, those planetary protection guidelines with regard to the moon? Oh, I actually, I'm not sure entirely. Um, I've not read that myself. I wouldn't be surprised since, you know, currently NASA has this this plan with the Artemis mission to send humans back to the moon. Um, but I've not read on, on current changes to planetary protection for the moon. Okay. So wrapping up, Graham, I mean, we could go on here for four <laughs> hours. But what do you think would be some of the most useful things or results that astrobiology as a discipline could deliver for, for us humans here on Earth for now? Yeah, I mean, astrobiology to me, it, it's it's you know, it's this quest to understand the nature of life, and that, that includes life here. And you know, it's remarkable. It hasn't even been a century yet that humans have been going into space and looking back and seeing our world from space. And you, you'll notice, like in, in astrobiology, it's not just the question of you know, how did life start here? How did life evolve here? Is there life elsewhere? There's also this this huge component of astrobiology that just gets us thinking a bit deeper about the connections of life here on Earth and potential for life out there. Those connections give us this cosmic perspective. Uh, you might have heard of the overview effect, for instance. When, when astronauts go to space, they report looking back at the Earth and having this cognitive shift in their view of their place in the cosmos and, and our place in the biosphere together and what we can do to make this better for ourselves and to fix our problems. And I, I think astrobiology is part of that. It, it gives people this grander view of what life is and what life could be. And that, I think, is the most important thing. I mean, yes, if, if we find techno signatures, uh, signs of technology around another star, that would be a remarkable finding. If, if we received communications telling us of the presence of a nearby extraterrestrial intelligent species, that'd be incredible. If we find life on Mars or on Europa or Venus, this would all be super incredible and a great starting point for us to then explore more about the potential for life out there. But I think the biggest thing that astrobiology has right now, and, I, and I've noticed it even more during the pandemic. During this pandemic, I've been speaking to, to students, to researchers across the world from Morocco and India and Pakistan, Iran, Germany, the UK, Chile, Colombia, just all over the place. And I, I feel like astrobiology is a human endeavor. It's causing us to, to work together around the world to try to better figure out who and what we are. And, and that's beautiful. That that has a lot of promise for our future, the way I see it. Yeah, that, that's that's something that's just nice about, I guess, space in in general. But let me take a step back here. So, because I mean, we've been talking about these alien life forms, right? But I mean, you've you said at the beginning that basically astrobiology is sort of like the the study of life in the in in, in the cosmos. And you know, if everything goes well, 
the dominant life form on this planet, us humans, we're about to go out there and we might actually start settling the solar system. And if and when that happens, right, then I, I expect, and I think many people expect, we will see start seeing some some changes to us as organisms, right? As we can we can already see sometimes happening with astronauts who stay a long time on the ISS, right? Who are experiencing physiological changes or, you know, the smarter science fiction uh, movies or series like The Expanse, you know, when they kind of present people who live, uh, let's say, in the asteroid belt, like the belt in the expanse they make it clear that they're like physiologically different does that mean that sort of the study of the of earth humans is that something that's astro that astrobiology the discipline of astrobiology is going to be doing in the future oh heck yeah um <laughs> there's also there's also a realm in, uh, in aerospace engineering called bioastronautics uh, which is okay. also considering this but i would consider bioastronautics also part of astrobiology and yes i mean so life life diversifies life adapts to different environments Not only might we humans, if we start setting populations, and I'm glad you brought up the expanse, it's a, it's a, it's a great case study that they, they present this idea that the belters start as a population evolving. They, they start selecting for those who live in this belt environment in microgravity and in these situations on spaceships much better. And, and that's what life does. Life adapts to different environments. And so we currently call ourselves humans, but maybe we'll start diversifying into different groups of humans who no longer interbreed. And then at that point, we might be on our way to a new speciation, uh, new kinds of groups who are no longer human, or at least there's some other kind of form of human. And then we also have the potential that with our, our near future, not only might we genetically engineer ourselves, we might, we, we might start changing the very genetic code, the biological code that makes us what we are. Yep. to suit our bodies to live on Mars. Maybe we'll change our bodies so we can breathe in a richer CO2 atmosphere and less oxygen and low pressure. Maybe we'll, we'll genetically engineer ourselves to handle more radiation than we currently can here at the surface. But then on top of that, what happens if, if, if the singularity, this idea that we might become our machines, that we are going to advance into becoming part of our own technology, if that happens... Maybe human life as we know it right now won't be around in a few centuries. Maybe the life that will then come to be will be some kind of post-biological human, some robotic form of human that then goes out and explores. And so there's a lot of potential there. And I love science fiction for this reason. It presents us with what we know based on the science, and then it allows us to explore what's, what's possible. And you've provided me with the wonderful segue here to the question. I always finish up these um, these talks on even the business ones, is, which is basically like, what kind of science fiction do you like? And of course, I'm going to ask you like, what kind of science fiction that you like is also good science fiction in the sense that they present, uh, let's say, reasonable astrobiology. Yeah, that's a lovely question. I love science fiction. I love that we we've we've used science fiction as a vehicle for telling very human stories about who and what we are. And it, it, science fiction, you know, does a great job of touching on our philosophy, on our ethics, as well as what's possible in space exploration and understanding, you know, new limits to what could be possible for the universe. Uh, and there's lots of grace. I mean, I loved Star Wars growing up. I really loved Star Trek a lot. I, I was a child of Star Trek Next Generation. That was my favorite show when I was a kid. And I, I love The Expanse. I'm, I'm glad that there's some, some newer forms of sci-fi that are kind of breaking new limits and things like that. My, my favorite book to this day is Dune by Frank Herbert. Mm -hmm. uh, I read Dune at least once a year, so I'm very excited for the upcoming film. Uh, yep. And there's there's things that science fiction sometimes gets very right about the science and sometimes gets very wrong. But unlike Neil deGrasse Tyson and some others, you know, I, I will point out when they get the science wrong. But at the same time, you know, it, it's still nice to enjoy a good story. Yeah, I'm certainly excited about the, the, the Dune movie, too. And it's interesting you mentioned Star Trek, you know, because 
I used to be one of these people and, and many times people kind of like point out to these many Star Trek races, right? Because um, you have this different so-called aliens in Star Trek, but there's basically, they're all humanoid, right? And then like some of them have bigger ears, some of them are blue, but it's just like tiny differences. And many people think that's just ridiculous and lazy, right? But then I heard somebody fairly recently make the argument, well, but maybe the underlying idea here is that something that you mentioned in the last few minutes that we were all humans and basically these are just branches. And then suddenly it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so so in the Star Trek universe, like uh, Gene Roddenberry would argue that you know he thought that that the human being was a pretty advanced being, but then you also had some stories. There, there's actually a story in the Next Generation that that shows that all of these 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 humanoid creatures around the galaxy all had the same origins, and it wasn't human. Uh, it was another organism that 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 we we, we came from, right? Um, which is an interesting idea. But you know, in, in science fiction. You know, it, it's it's not easy to create an entirely alien species for your movie or your book or your television show. And when you're telling a human story, it's easier to tell that story through the vehicle of having humanoid characters, which is why you often will see the, these humanoid characters in science fiction. But yeah, we, we, we don't have any reason to assume, at least yet, uh, until we find more examples of life, we don't have any reason to assume that alien life will look anything like us. Yeah. Graham, thank you so much for doing this talk. I mean, I, I can only imagine how exciting this, this all must be for you. I mean, it would be incredibly exciting for me. Arguably, you are living at the most exciting time in history to be an astrobiologist. And that's even, I say that not only backward looking, which is kind of obvious, but even forward looking, right? Because this might be the moment when we very soon, hopefully, discover other alien life. So, you know, I wish you a lot of excitement and continued studies and a lot of fun with that. Well, many thanks. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, Check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell, or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.